You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Okay, that can only mean one thing. Getting started with a Jody, we love it every week, as a matter of fact, and uh, it reminds me of time in the service, and I'm sure it reminds our guest of time in the service. I'm sure that Phil, and we're going to be interviewing Phil Forsberg, and uh, Phil has a... A two-sheeter, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's the two-sheet bio on all of the different activities and things that, that uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Forsberg has done in his career. And uh, he was telling me he just he couldn't stay away from the military. So he kept... Wait a second. What's happening? There we go. Uh... Too many, shuffling too many pieces of paper right quick. Before we get started, though, uh, sir, I'd, I'd like to remind everybody to uh, uh, think about the folks in Louisiana and Texas that are struggling through and, and going to be uh, going through the, the hurricane and uh, that's hit. Louisiana pretty severely now and is headed to Texas as well. So think about those folks when you get a chance during the day and, um, you know, uh, say a little prayer for them. That would be good, and we certainly support all of the first responders that will be going into Texas and to into Louisiana to help clean up and help put people's lives back together. Very important. So with that being said, Sir, I'd like to welcome you to America's Web Radio. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, well, I was just a grunt, so you don't have, you don't have to uh, you don't have to say sir to me. I have to say sir to you though, because I was uh, taught at Fort Ord, California, that uh, you do say sir, you don't say lieutenant colonel, and you don't certainly don't go by their first name or, or last name. You just say sir, and uh, I guess it's because the grunts like myself, we could always remember the name "sir," but remembering something else might might have been a challenge for us. But anyway, <laughs> are you able to hear me okay now? I am, sir. Yes. Okay, good. Well, you have quite a sordid career, and uh, when I when I say sordid, you've just done a little bit of everything, and a lot of people. Uh, have never probably never even thought about doing some of the things that you've done, but you started out. You're uh, you're one of them, as they say down south. Uh, you're a New Yorker, born in New York, and uh, commissioned uh, in 1982 after completing your BS in civil engineering at Clarks- Clarkson College of Technology. I'm not really familiar with Clarkson. Sir? I'm not I'm not really familiar with Clarkson. <clears throat> well, I don't know what it is now, but it, it was a small engineering school up uh, on the Canadian border 
In fact, uh, I'm uh, 20 miles from Canada. I was in ROTC, and uh, we called it Run Off to Canada. Hmm. Run Off to Canada. Okay. Uh, and that's uh, close to what you did, huh? <clears throat> well, um, yeah, I, I did my degree there in civil engineering, and, uh, you know, I originally got interested in uh, going into the Army to pay for my engineering uh, degree, which they did, and, uh, and I wanted to be a civil engineer, so I chose the Army because they had the Army Corps of Engineers, and by the time I was finished with my degree, I was just so tired of engineering that I wanted to do something else. Army was uh, crestfallen that I wasn't going in the Corps of Engineers, but I had to get my colonel to intervene to let me go uh, to infantry and then flight school. You know, you've sort of given me a good uh, segue into something that we always try to talk about, um, and that is that today's military, if, if uh, we've got a grandparent or parent listening, or even if we have a a college graduate or a high school senior about to graduate. And uh, the option of going into the military today, it is a incredible career today. Unlike um, at some times during my life, it was not exactly the place you wanted to raise your hand, although I did. But Still today, if you're if you're undecided or if you're decided on what you want to do, the military has a place for you, and it's it's a great great occupation. Uh, and I I'm very fortunate to have a son that's uh, in the Air Force and loves it. And uh, he and his wife, because of the Air Force, have traveled all over the world. He's been stationed in beautiful places and some that were not so beautiful, but for the most part, um, he started out in Hawaii and uh, then went to Korea and then went to uh, Germany, and he's been in Germany, and now, though, he's back in the United States, so loving having him closer if the pandemic hadn't hit where he can't travel that much. But anyway, uh, we want to always promote the uh, military we also want to promote something that you're involved in heavily but uh we want to remind people that uh, this show is also dedicated to the georgia military veterans hall of fame and uh rick white retired colonel rick white uh helps us in many many ways and we like the fact that we get to help them a little bit and if you're traveling to georgia to atlanta please put on your schedule to go by the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. You will find it one of the most interesting days you ever spend. And um, we look look forward to you being it. When I said that you, you're you involved in something that, uh, that we care a lot about, and that's the DAV, which is disarmed, or disabled, I'm sorry, not disarmed, but disabled American veterans. And... Um, what an organization, and you know, let me ask because of, because of your involvement in that, um, do you feel like I do that today we're getting more and more appreciation for our veterans than we have since World War II? Well, David, <clears throat> you know, World War II. Uh, 
My dad served in the Navy in World War II in the Pacific uh, and saw a lot of action, but he, um, you know, in those days, uh, that greatest generation, 70% of those troops were um, drafted. Then you make it to, you know, when I was a little boy during Vietnam, uh, only 30% of those troops are drafted. So I don't know which is the greatest generation, but then again, we go to today and we have an all volunteers, uh, all volunteer force and not one of those folks is drafted. And, uh, you know, if, if that's the kind of country we want to have, the greatest country in the world that's, you know, got to have the greatest defense in the world, then we have to, we have to pay what the going rate is for, uh, for young men and women to, to go in and, and serve. And part of that is pay. Part of that is benefits. And one of the benefits that our country has, uh, put into law for our, for our veterans is, uh, these, uh, the benefits they get from the Department of Veterans Affairs. And it's a, it's a bureaucracy and the people there are doing a, the best they can, but, you know, it's sometimes very difficult and frustrating for, uh, veterans to get the benefits that they've earned. And so I've dedicated a great deal of time to working with, uh, veterans to get them the benefits that they've earned and explain the process to them and, and help them, uh, file for their benefits. It could be, it could be disability benefits. It could be health care. It could be education. It could be rehabilitation. It, it might be, uh, you know, buying a home, a home loan. There's all sorts of benefits that are available to veterans. And I would say to any veteran out there, um, if you have any question at all about what you might be entitled to, I would contact your local chapter of your uh, disabled American veterans and ask to speak to a service officer. Hmm. You know, one one area that I'm have gotten familiar with over, over the last few months, and uh, that you, as you were going through the list of things, that's also the fact of the military. And if you're a veteran, uh, they have funeral benefits and burial benefits as well. And uh, we've gotten f- quite familiar with them uh, in the last couple of months. And uh, a lot of a lot of families don't realize that that uh, if you served uh, during wartime, particularly, then you are eligible for a number of different uh, burial benefits. Well, it's true, and it's not just the burial benefits are not just for wartime veterans. Um, so, uh, and, and likewise, disability, education, home loans. Those, those are not just for say for uh, combat service veterans. Those are for for all veterans who served and were discharged honorably. And they've even expanded it into uh, some of the reservists. Yes, you know mm-hmm. there are certain things qualifying for guard and reserve uh, troops that uh, that do qualify them. A lot of folks, you know. <clears throat> You can't just join the guard or reserve and, and show up one weekend a month. You have to go through the full training and get qualified. And so a lot of soldiers uh, qualify as uh, uh, for their veteran benefits just through their initial training. Hmm. You know, 
our government, uh, well, in my opinion, we live in the best country in the world. One other thing that, uh, as, as you were talking about uh, the benefits and, and people, why people join today, why do we have a all-volunteer military? And thank goodness there are still young folks out there that have love of country. It's not just all for the benefits. It's not just all for the education. It's not just all for this or that. But there is still a pride in the United States. And uh, we saw this. We saw a portion of this during 9-11. And uh, I know that uh, as far as my son that's in the Air Force is concerned, he... Uh, <sighs> I guess the best way I could describe him is he's an old timer and, uh, he's not really, but, uh, he does love his country and that's part of the reason that he's staying in and will wind up probably careering it. Uh, it has, it has given him, like I said, the opportunity and his wife to travel, but it's also he loves and supports his country and, uh, I, we've talked about that and, uh, his views are very, Interesting. He graduated from Texas A&M and was in the Corps and then ROTC, Air Force ROTC, and then uh, commissioned uh, after graduation and has been in ever since. So let's get back to uh, Phil. And uh, there are not many. Now, I was a general aviation pilot, fixed wing, and uh, I never, in fact... My degree is in agriculture, so we don't quite understand what keeps those choppers up and flying. We understand the fixed wing portion of it, but we don't understand the chopper wing. So, and not a whole lot of folks do what you've done. Start with chopper and then go to, go to fixed wing. Tell us what, where, where your thinking was and, and how you got from one place to the second place. <clears throat> well, you know, as I said, I started out in the infantry. And uh, I learned three core skills at Fort Benning, walk, dig, and shoot. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought at Benning uh, you also learned jump. Yes, I, that was the advanced infantry. I, I also learned to fall. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, And then once you get to the ground, you can walk, dig, and shoot. But uh, what I, what, uh, so I, I went to flight school shortly after uh, qualifying as an infantry officer. And um, uh, the first thing I ever flew in my life was a helicopter. And I must admit, I did not do it well. Uh, there was, you know, when you first start out, you uh, your instructor takes you up and he shows you what he's doing. And he gives you basically three, three controls. You got your cyclic with the right hand, your collective with the left hand, and the pedals you work with your feet. And they give you one at a time. He'll say, well, let, let me just let you work the pedals and just try to keep the nose straight, you know, as I hover here. And you say, well, that's, you know, that's difficult, but I got it, you know. And then uh, then they say, okay, I want to give you the collective. You just keep us three foot off the ground here, you know, with this. And he takes back the pedals and... uh and you're all over the place. And he says, okay, I'm take back all the controls. I'm going to give you the cyclic. And now you're all over the state of Alabama there uh, <laughs> trying to stay in one place. And you can't, you just, you, you're so nervous thinking, when is he going to take the controls back from me? But I hope he gets them before we die. 
<laughs> and then that happens a few times. And then one day you got all the controls and you're not doing very well. But instead of wishing your instructor would take the controls away, you're thinking to yourself, he better not touch these controls. I got this. I'm skinning this cat. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, yeah. Anyway, you get to a point where you hit what they call the hover button. And, uh, somehow it's, it's sort of like, uh, riding a bicycle. You know, you maybe hadn't ridden a bicycle in 10, 15 years, but you get on one and ride it. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of the same thing with the helicopter. You just don't lose it once you get it. That's neat. That's neat. So, uh, have you kept your license? Uh, and yeah, I have a commercial and, helicopter, uh, uh, rotary wing instrument, uh, license, but I also have, uh, well, I have a, uh, multi engine transport, uh, pilot license, a fixed wing, uh, airline transport pilot license, and type ratings in the 747 and the 777 and the 737 and the, uh, regional jet as well. Wow. Yeah, you didn't give, give me those, though. <laughs> those are not my own. Yes, sir. Uh, obviously, you like being in the air, and uh, that's why well, I, I'm retired from from commercial flying now. I'm I'm doing real estate now, but the uh, yeah, I, I have I have flown around the world over 200 times. Wow, flying cargo. Huh. That that is incredible. Um, I didn't do that in the Army. <laughs> well, the Army uh, seems to decide for you, and once you get out of the military, you start deciding for yourself. Well, you know, that, that, that is a good point, uh, David. You know, you're a young man and uh, or a young woman, and you, you are fresh out of high school, or, you know, maybe you had a couple of years of college and you don't know really what to do and everybody wants to give you a job if you have skill there's a lot of skills you can get in the armed forces uh i tell you you know one of the things that's really hot these days is computers and communications and uh if you can get yourself uh you know training uh in uh, computers and and uh communications and any of the services and get yourself a top secret clearance there are folks lined up lined up to hire you when your service is done. And they pay very well. They pay very, very well. I don't know how in the world they ever get anybody to reenlist uh, in those uh, career fields because just the the sheer amount of money that, that civilian uh, companies, usually defense contractors, mm-hmm. are looking to offer you uh, at the end of your time. You know, I think this is, you, you just hit on a word that, uh, I was not aware of until I went back and was on, uh, not in the military, but, uh, was calling on, uh, on some military bases. And, uh, I was amazed at the amount, you know, when I was going through, uh, you know, the, the old joke about, what did you learn in the army? How to peel potatoes or this or that or whatever. And, uh, today so much of the military is contract and contract labor as opposed to, uh, 
being in the in that in the army and peeling potatoes. You, you probably have a, a a contractor not only peeling but cooking the potatoes. And, well, David, you probably remember the the, uh, the time when uh, in the army when folks would go uh, you'd go on these details picking up litter and and painting rocks and that type of thing. <laughs> yes, sir. And, uh, I'll tell you that's that's long gone. They have contractors pick up the trash, but I do re- recall a long time ago seeing a a, uh, a sign on a military installation. I can't remember which one. It said. Uh, our soldiers are not here to pick up your trash, you know. But but in those days, they did have soldiers doing police detail, picking up uh, picking up trash and along the sides of the roads and, and beautifying the post. But you know now, uh, you know mess facilities are contract and so many other things. Oh yeah, uh, even the uh, guards at the gates are contract. They are, yeah. But you know. Uh, you know, a, a soldier costs more than his uh, than just his pay, and so it's actually a financial benefit to have uh, these contractors because the uh, you know the soldiers' uh, cost to the government is a great deal more than just their pay. Oh well, you know, if you take your situation, uh, your experience in the military, learning to fly both fixed wing. And helicopters, uh, how much do you think the government put into uh, Phil before uh, he finally retired? <laughs> I couldn't say for sure. Uh, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, a couple of decades, it's, uh, it, you know, you'd have to adjust for inflation. But uh, I, I regard the training that I had as invaluable. Really, you couldn't put a price on it. And, and of course, also the experiences. And I really uh, have, uh, well, you know, I used to have folks come to me, and uh, especially since 9-11-01. Uh, they see you in uniform. They come up and they say, you know, thank you for your service. And, uh, you know, I would always try to tell them, uh, I thank you for my paycheck, and I try to be worthy of it every day. So... Uh, I'm hoping that the American people got their uh, total value uh, from my service, uh, what they paid uh, for my training and my compensation. Uh, I hope I hope they think it was a good value. <laughs> After just a few minutes of talking with you, I can assure you that uh, I know I feel like I got my money's worth and. Uh, uh, <laughs> It's, well, thank you for saying so. Uh, no, it's uh, it's an appreciation thing, and our vets um, need to be appreciated. And there's uh, we're going to take a, a short live break, as a matter of fact, and uh, talk about the uh, Georgia Veteran Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and it's in downtown Atlanta. It's uh, in the Floyd Building, right across the street from the state capitol. And I recommend anybody that lives in Atlanta, if they haven't been to it, they should go to it. And if you're traveling to Atlanta on vacation or just to visit someone, put that down on your on a day trip that you want to go down and look at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And um, you'll find out some very, very interesting stories about what folks have done, what folks are doing, and 
Uh, Rick White, Colonel Rick White, retired, is the uh, director and chairman of uh, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and he does just an outstanding job and is a very, very good man, and I enjoy working with him, and uh, he's the one that uh, has put Lieutenant Colonel Phil Forsberg and myself together, and uh, as all of the interviews that Rick has lined up, they've been just super. We also want to mention the fact that Georgia is really turning into a salute to veterans. Uh, We've got the Johns Creek Vietnam Veterans Healing Wall, which is a replica of the, well, it was the wall, the 50% size of the Vietnam Veterans Wall in Washington. This one traveled all over the United States in Johns Creek, Georgia. The Veterans Association bought it and has given it a permanent home now in Newtown Park. And uh, it is just something you've got to see. They'll be putting up a kiosk very shortly that will have a computer and you can type in a name and locate it very quickly at the wall. And we also want to mention Peachtree Corners that has a memorial to uh, Vietnam veterans. And, uh, you know, it's just, I'm glad to see that veterans are getting the attention that they should have. Uh, And I I get sick of one fact. We were talking about it a minute ago, Phil, was that that only 1% of our population now serves in our military and that's why we promote kids getting out of high school or out of college look at the military you'll be glad you did so let's get back to uh what you did and uh you were flying the mohawk is that right uh when you went to uh desert shield yes sir uh, it was uh, two days after I finished my qualification in the OV-1 Mohawk and returned to my unit at Fort Hood when uh, my unit got the alert for uh, to, to go uh, to Saudi Arabia and support a Desert Shield. And uh, so I got my unit checked out in the Mohawk, actually in country. I, I did not deploy one of the airplanes across the Atlantic to get there. Uh, I took the main body of of our company and set up our base of operations there. But then uh, once the aircraft arrived, I, I checked out and uh, I was actually flying in the air when uh, when it went from being Desert Shield to Desert Storm. And therefore, I was the first uh, Army aviator to log combat time in the OV-1 Mohawk uh, since Vietnam. Uh Fort Hood, which I'm familiar with, but I th- I didn't realize that it had any any training and uh, aviation training at all. When I was there, it was strictly tanks and APCs. And well, Fort- I have aviation units there. When I was there, we had two divisions and uh, five separate uh, brigades uh, and the Corps headquarters. And there's quite a bit of aviation. There's both fixed and rotary wing aviation, of course. Being Army is mostly rotary wing, but uh, no, my training my training was uh, in the airframe at uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, and then uh, and then I did train in the systems at Fort Huachuca. And I guess what I'm saying is, 
I went to both those stations, and when I returned to my unit at Fort Hood, it was two days before we got our alert. Tell, tell us a little bit about the Mohawk for people that don't know, and its capabilities and what it's primarily used for. Well, it, it's an interesting aircraft. It's, a, it's the uh, it's the only uh, Army aircraft that uh, that Grumman Aerospace ever built. Uh, they built a lot for the Navy, but uh, this is uh, they built this one for the Army. Uh, it was supposed to be Army and Marine Corps, and it was supposed to be a carrier-based uh, aircraft. But uh, something political happened in the in the development of the aircraft, and the, the uh, Marines backed out. They eventually went with the OV-10 Bronco, but the OV-1 Mohawk. <clears throat> um, there, uh, there are actually two National Guard units that had the Mohawk, one here in uh, Georgia at Dobbins and the other in uh, in the Oregon Guard up in, I think, Salem, Oregon. But uh, the Mohawk was a, uh, a twin-engine, turboprop, side-by-side, big bubble canopy. Uh, OV stands for observation airplane, and uh, the... Uh, the um, the aircraft itself had uh, uh, cameras in the nose, in the belly, and the sides uh, for taking battlefield photographs. It had uh, hard points on the wings for uh, you could drop 500-pound bombs, you could shoot rocket pods or 50-cal pods. Uh, but in Vietnam, it got real, real political. The Air Force freaked out about the Army having uh, an aircraft that could drop munitions, so... They, uh, <clears throat> that, that was all passe by the time I flew it. Uh, but the main system we had was, uh, a side looking airborne radar and it could look out over the horizon basically quite a distance and, uh, uh, it would t- paint the battlefield with the radar as you flew along a, a path and, uh, it would show you everything on the ground that had moved while it was going by. And so it, we had what we call moving target indicators on the ground. And so we began flying missions in Desert Shield in about October of 1990. And so by January of 1991, <clears throat> when uh, when we went to hostilities, we had a complete database of uh, where all the enemy uh, forces were, where the, where their main supply routes were, what times of day they moved, uh, you know, all, all that business. And then, of course, you overlay that with other types of intelligence, like signals intelligence, where you're checking out the, uh, the radio nets of uh, who's talking and where they're located. And then, of course, your uh, your radar uh, intelligence. You, you, there was a version of the Mohawk uh, called the Quick Look, and it would fly, and all it was completely passive. It would just get painted by enemy radars, and uh, every time it was painted by a radar, it classified the radar and got a location on that radar. So that by the time the air war started in uh, January of uh, 1991, we knew where all their people were, and uh, where we knew their their divisions and their order of battle. Locations of all their radars, and I would say on that first night of the air war in, in Desert Storm, uh, our Air Force and Navy took out a 
so about every radar emitter that they had. Wow. And pretty much blinded them. Hmm. Uh, I guess with the Tomahawk, right? Missile? Uh, well, Tomahawk's a cruise missile. Uh, I think they use something called a Harm, a high, uh, mm, it, it's an anti-radiation missile. Hmm. Okay. High explosive anti-radiation missile or something like that. It's launched from usually a, you know, a fighter or attack aircraft and, uh, it'll fly right down the, uh, the beam of a radar signal or, you know, it'll just fly where you tell it to, I think. Another one of our smart bombs, huh? Yeah. Well, that was that was really the, uh, the demonstration of precision munitions there. Uh, first real good demonstration during Desert Storm. <laughs> Incredible. And, uh, you know, for, for many years, we had been gearing up and uh, preparing to fight uh, against the Soviet Union in Europe. And uh, so we had all the... We had all the stuff to counter the Soviet stuff, and, and the Iraqis made the poor decision of arming himself with all Soviet equipment. So, uh, and in the desert there, you know, there's really no trees, and so, it, you know, it was kind of like fighting a war on a blackboard. <laughs> Inter- interesting uh, correlation. Uh, you bring up the... the Russians, basically, and uh, of course, we're looking at the Chinese today. They they seem to copy everything that we have. Is there anything? Uh, are they flying something similar to the Mohawk? Uh, most of the missions of the Mohawk uh, these days are being uh, fulfilled by uh, unmanned aircraft. Okay, the drones. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened if we had a union. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> won't go there, but I understand what you're saying. Um, so from there, you went to the fixed wing, and what what all did you fly besides the 172 while you were learning? I'm sure, but what else did you uh, what else did you well, want to fly? Uh, you know, the other real mission aircraft I flew, I flew uh, RC-12 in uh, in Honduras for a year during. Uh, Basically, all 1989, um, and we flew. There, were, if folks recall, there was a lot of um, enemies we had in, in Central America in those days, and so uh, we, we, that was mostly radio recon, uh, listening to their uh, transmissions, working out their networks. And and then you went to. I'm sorry. And then you went to, uh, from that, you went to uh, what type of plane? Well, uh, when I finished in Honduras, I went back to uh, Fort Hood, where I had already spent uh, uh, four years at Fort Hood early on in my career uh, in attack helicopters. But um, I came back to uh, Fort Hood after Honduras to fly the OV-1 Mohawk. And... uh, of course, uh, after Desert Storm, they were looking for uh, to downsize all our forces, and uh, they offered me a great deal of money to quit, and so I did. Uh, I quit the Army for my first time, but not the last time I quit. I actually quit the Army uh, 
three times in my career. So I have 4214s. <laughs> and a lot of folks don't know what those are, but that's uh, your honorable discharge papers. It is. Uh, it's a summary of your service. And uh, when, you, when you're discharged, they give you a DD-214. DD stands for Department of Defense. So no matter what service you may have uh, served in, the um, you, your document that uh, documents your service is your DD-214. And if there are veterans out there considering uh, filing for any kind of benefits through the VA, it's helpful if you can go find your DD-214 or uh, contact uh, archives.gov. And there's instructions on there to request your uh, military records. I think I've got a DD-256, something like that, that they used. Uh, this was in 74, 75 uh, for reservists, which is the same as a DD-214, but it was just a, a reserve thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, anyway, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, they let me out, and they said I was honorable. And uh, they they have uh, definitely renamed me, though, and that's uh, Vietnam veteran or Vietnam era, and that's E R R O R veteran. And uh, I will admit I was probably a, a big era then. But anyway, so. Okay, back to your, you went from uh, rotary to fixed wing, and then uh, after you retired the third time, you've had an you've you've had a career in civilian flying, right? I did. Um, when for a period I was uh, in the guard and, and reserve and just uh, part time in it, and uh, from uh, well in in the nineties basically. Up until about 2006, I uh, flew passengers for a airline called Atlantic Coast Airlines. It's not in anymore. Uh, it went out of business. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I flew passengers out of uh, Washington, Dulles, and then later Chicago. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And then uh, that went out of business. I mobilized in the Army Reserve and went to uh, Fort Rucker to work uh, policy on uh, unmanned aircraft for a while. And then I quit again. And I went to, uh, got myself a job uh, flying cargo in 747s, some very, very, very old equipment. And then, uh, and then in, uh, after just qualifying in the 747, I only had two flights in the actual airplane when uh, I got orders back for three years in uh, D.C. on the Army staff. So I went and did that. Uh, I finally had my 20 years. Over the course of 29 years, I put together a little over 20 years active duty, and I retired and uh, went back to my cargo outfit. And uh, instead of 747s, at the time I bought these brand-new shiny uh Boeing triple seven freighters, and uh, like that's uh, that's probably the one aircraft I have more time in than any other. Hmm. Close to five thousand hours, I guess. Wow, that's a lot of flying. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was exhausting. 
I can I can only imagine. I I can't really imagine, but I can only imagine. Uh, well, you know, people would ask me, "Is it is it exciting flying around the world?" And I would just respond, "Not if you do it right." <laughs> uh, well, what, and, what are they? What, uh, know, what do they call a landing? A controlled crash? <laughs> I had a few of those, but uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, yeah, flying that cargo. Uh, I can't tell you how dull it is to stare at the Pacific Ocean for nine hours. <laughs> and it wouldn't even speak to you, would it? The uh, no, the cargo. No. Let me. You, you brought up something else that uh, you said that you went back and worked with. Did you? Are we going to come to a push-button military drone military, or do you still feel like that the human touch is going to be mandatory, no matter what the circumstance is? That yes, drones can do some things, and even the best pilot sitting in Florida, watching his plane in Iraq or his drone in Iraq, uh, can still, you know, it's still not the same. You know, um, it's great to have technology. It's great to have helps. You know, it's great to have tools in your toolbox. But in the end, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to occupy the ground. And, uh, you know, all these tools, they're, they're really helps for mankind, but they're, they don't replace and, uh, you know, I, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, a quote from, uh, my biggest military hero was, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. And he wrote at the end of his memoirs, he wrote, any attempt to make warfare safe or easy will end in humiliation and disaster. So I will tell you, uh, you can make it easier but you won't be able to make it easy or say there's always going to be some risk uh you know i i guess in many many ways um the drone can take the picture but it can't interpret the picture and whereas if you've flown into a situation you may be taking pictures right and left and up and down but you're still there and um, I don't know when you went back for your briefings if you put your two cents worth in or maybe your dollar into the conversation after after the pictures had been taken. And I don't even know if that makes any sense or not. But uh, yeah, someone. I mean, you can have all the help in the world, but somebody's got to analyze what you're looking at. And it's sort of one of those been there, done that. If you're the one that's uh, pushing the button to take the picture, you're also seeing the picture at the same time, in in many cases. Yeah. I think it was Yogi Berra that said, you can see a lot by looking. <laughs> that certainly sounds like something that he would say, with no question about it. I love it. And something about a fat lady singing, too. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what else, uh, what would you... Oh, one question I always ask, and certainly with your involvement in the DAV and and your involvement with other veterans, have can you name one or have you ever met a veteran that can tell only one story? 
I'm sorry. Say that again. Okay. Have you ever met or do you know a veteran that can tell only one story or only has one story to tell? No. Uh, no, there's not. There's, uh, you know, I would say, uh, you know, the more you've seen, uh, uh, you know, the more, you know, one story leads into the next. Um You'd have to have a pretty short career to just have the one story. <laughs> and I think uh, my wife should tell you I tell the same story over and over again to people who've already hear, heard it. Well, I, you know, I uh, I kid about it, but I love sitting around the table with a number of veterans, and and then at, at some point it becomes a well, you may be a, may have been shot at a hundred times, but I was shot at two hundred times, and. Um, you know, oh, I know where that was in Vietnam, but we were just down the road from you. In fact, we're the ones that bailed you out. But, you know, it's just it's a wonderful experience. And every grandchild should be able to sit or hopefully will get to sit on their grandfather's knee and listen to his stories about, well, when I was in the service, I did, you know. And, uh, and, I, and at the same time, I don't. I seldom hear or talk to veterans that aren't humble about their service, and they may have they may have gone through hell and back like Audie Murphy, but uh, at the same time, they say, "Oh shucks, anybody would have done that." Well, you know, David, uh, the opposite of humility is pride, and uh, you know, pride is all about being selfish and self-centered and the very nature of service is being selfless so if you're going to be a good soldier uh, you, you've got to have a great deal of humility you've got to be able to put others ahead of yourself and you know the very idea of an army uh, is that you work as part of a team and the, the glory doesn't go to individuals you know, the, the, the glory goes to, to the team. And, uh, you know, I spoke to a lot of veterans, and I told them I thought they were heroes. And they all have the same uh, the same response, and that is that the folks that are really the heroes are the ones that didn't come home. You know, the one, uh, or I say the one, Many things that the military teaches, and and it's true. And uh, whether it's Air Force or Navy or Army, whatever it might be, is the teaching of that you got your buddies back, and that could be in the air, on the ground, wherever it might be. And the discipline of of trusting the guy in front of you and the guy behind you, and uh, yeah. it's all you know. The older I get. <laughs> I will have not really flashbacks, but just thoughts of when when I was going through AIT or BASIC, and here I was, a college graduate going through BASIC, and why in the world are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense, you know? And now, a hundred years later, the Army, the Navy, everything has a reason, and 
it's easier to see today than it certainly was when you were being yelled at to drop in a bucket of mud, you know, uh, or whatever <laughs> the case might be. But, you know, it, well, it has a reason. You know, I mean, we we have a tradition uh, in uh, in our armed forces that go back many, many, many years. Uh, and then, you know, there are folks whose traditions, like von Steuben, who, you know, trained our soldiers, that their tradition went back many, many, many years, you know, uh, as long as mankind's been hostile toward each other. But, and so it's important, you know, that we have the lessons learned. But back to what you were saying, when you, uh, when you, raise your hand and, and swear an oath to, you know, support and defend the Constitution and enlist or take your commission in one of the services, uh, you may be thinking about your country. You may be thinking about uh, uh, the the honor it is or, you know, how important our republic is or, or maybe you're thinking about the education benefits you're going to get or whatever, but when you're there... When your butt's in the sand and, you know, the, you hear your first shot fired in anger, um, all that is kind of secondary. You're thinking about that guy to your left and the guy to your right. And what you're doing is you're working as a team and, uh, toward a goal. And, uh, so, you know, that macro stuff is for afterwards, but, uh, but it, you know, it really is a family, uh, and uh, you know, I have I suffer from a great deal of what's, what's called uh, survivor's guilt because I didn't, I didn't really, uh, you know, I wasn't killed. I didn't lose any uh, arms or legs or eyes, uh, and uh, you know, toward the end when I was a, an old goat. And I kept volunteering to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. They just kept putting me on staff there. And I wound up with a lot of this survivor's guilt. And uh, so I deal with it by helping veterans. And um, that's what I do. And it's like therapy for me, helping helping veterans get the benefits that were promised to them by their country. You know... We all have our, our guilt, I guess, of some shape, form, or fashion in that, uh, yes, I volunteered. I joined the National Guard in Texas. And now I've, there are many times that I feel guilty that I didn't do what I should have, and that's uh, I should have gone to the regular Army instead of the reservists. Well, I will tell you this. I would never diminish the service of anybody in the National Guard or Reserve because when I went to combat, I saw an awful lot of Guard and Reserve guys all around. So um, they just had, they probably had more on the ball and they were doing a civilian job and also, you know, serving their country. And every day you had that ID card in your pocket, you're subject to recall. Yes, sir. You know, this is... uh you were talking about uh, that's that's why you work with the with veterans. Um, I do this show, or we do we do a, a number of military type shows. We have uh, 
We have a show called Remembering Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Uh, we do a veteran story, and I'm sure you know uh, uh, Pete Mecca, or I, I would guess you do, and uh, Roger Wise we've had on many times. And, uh, you know, we owe our veterans so much, and the ones that served in country, the ones that have, you know, and, and we also point out, and, and want to recognize and salute the families of veterans, the women that stayed back and, and took care of the families, took care of the changing of the light bulbs or whatever the case might be, while their husbands served, or many times now, husbands stay back while their wives are serving. And uh, we, we respect all of the women that have served in, and want to give them more notoriety, and we try to because a lot of folks don't realize how many women served in Vietnam and in different capacities. Not all were nurses. Not all were anything. They were a lot of different things, and a lot of them gave hope to the wounded. A lot of them uh, did somewhat menial tasks, but they were there serving. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, we, we like to salute all of the women that are in the military now. And, uh, and uh, yes, uh, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, uh, and just to, on the topic of nurses, I have nothing but the highest respect for the nurses uh, that I met in the, in the service Absolutely. And the one thing that, one other thing that I always do on this show, and, and I have, I've only known a couple, but uh, I have all the respect in the world for the dust-off pilots. What they did in Vietnam was beyond her, her, heroic, and uh, they they saved so many lives and put themselves in harm's way. And they are the epitome of of uh, the cha- uh, the the scripture: uh, uh, "No greater love hath man than to lay down his life for a friend." And uh, you know, they the dust off pilots, and many times the nurses jumped on the dust off to go with them to pick up whoever and whatever in whatever situation, and uh, they were. You know, everybody thinks of uh, the MASH unit and the MASH itself. But as we've had Donna Rowe on, we've had many nurses on now. And, and uh, you know, it's just when you're there, it's a whole different world. And uh, you're talking about you having I, – I, it bothers me that I didn't serve like I should have. But – I, I can't go back now, and for, I can't understand why, but they don't want somebody my age back in. <laughs> it's a young man's game. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we've been talking with Lieutenant Colonel Philip uh, <laughs> Forsberg. Am I saying your last name right, Forsberg? Yeah. Okay. Oh, 
Um, <laughs> My time in the Army, I've heard it called all sorts of things. Well, you can get that, and and I had a few officers call me some things that I can't say, but <laughs> that's that's okay too. That's where I learned to say sir, and uh, it was very. Uh, as a captain was uh, teaching me a lesson, I I learned it very well, and uh, that's why I still say sir, and uh, always will, I guess. But uh, it has been my pleasure to have you on America's Web Radio, and. Will you come back? And the one thing we want to do, and, and I've been totally amazed at this, we work with uh, General Richard Dix, but something that I've just been totally blown away with is the number of civilians, number of folks that don't remember Desert Shield or Desert Storm, and that was our latest conflict, and yet they don't, uh, they've already forgotten it. And that just kills me, and that's why we do the do the show. As a matter of fact, um, so will you come back and be with us again and and talk more about what you did in uh, Iraq and uh, in Desert Shield and Desert Storm? Absolutely, that would be my pleasure. Great. I want to thank you again for being with us and uh, coming on today, and want to say one more thank you for to. Rick White that put this all together, and uh, Rick's a, a great man. He's at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. He's the director of it, and um, please, if you have an opportunity, go by and check it out. You'll be so glad that you did. And the and the uh, Floyd Building has a pretty good cafeteria, too, so you can go in and uh, make it a whole day and take your family to lunch and just Read all about our Georgian heroes, and there are so many of them. So, with that being said, again, uh, Philip, thank you, and uh, we will be talking to you soon about when you're going to come back. Thanks so much, David. Take care. You've been listening to America's Web Radio, and uh, we appreciate you tuning in today. And uh, we'll have more on. We have healthcare. Insight coming up shortly, and I uh, want you to stay tuned, and we'll be back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.